Hey everyone. Unfortunately, we are not meeting this Sunday. We've got some weather. And yes, the roads are slushy and maybe most of us could make it, but more is scheduled to hit us while we're in church and then it'll be dark and we're trying to navigate home and we just figured it might be better to call this a snow Sunday, which we did the first time way back in Revelation. And the idea is that this is your at-home Sunday night service. But I am not going to teach Ezekiel, which we're scheduled to do tonight. We will save that for next week when we can all be together. So next week we'll do Ezekiel chapters 1 through 3. But today, tonight, right now, as perhaps you hear the pitter-patter of the rain and snow combo outside my window... We're going to look at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. So this is how you need to do this. Build a fire, brew some tea, settle into your favorite sofa or armchair, and open your Bible to Matthew chapter 4, because we are going to do church at home. So, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I mean, of course he was hungry. Sometimes the Bible can dramatically understate things, can it? Yet this reminds me of the hunger we are experiencing in life. We are hungry. We've been wandering in the wilderness of this world, and we are not completely satisfied. Life comes with hunger, and we are wanting to satisfy it. Do you remember the Snickers campaign? Their uh, advertisement campaign? They might even still be running it. Hungry? Grab a Snickers? And and the commercials would go something along the lines of someone is not themselves because they're hungry. Um, they're throwing a temper tantrum or they're acting like someone really <laughs> who needs to be pampered. And then they give them a Snickers and they return back to themselves. And, and they say, you are not you when you are hungry. Grab a Snickers. Well, you are not you when you're hungry. That's true. Now, Snickers is not going to cure that. That is a bad solution. But neither will many of the things we turn to to satisfy our hunger in life. And you are not the real you, your true self in God, when you are living life hungry. Jesus is hungry. And I believe that the devil tests him here the way we are tested when we are hungry in life. Because please note that this is not the temptation of morality. Jesus was not tempted to get drunk. He was not tempted to sleep around. He was not tempted to steal, rob, curse, murder, destroy. These are not the temptations he was faced with even though that's perhaps how we would write it if we were told, hey, imagine the devil testing somebody. What would the tests be? No, because 
Look, when we're hungry in life, we are reaching for some very complex versions of Snickers bars, which we know will taste good, but will be horrible nourishment to ourselves. And so that's what we see in these temptation scenes, is we see Jesus showing us what is not a good answer to satisfy your life hunger. And these are often very subtle. I find myself sometimes going into these realms, and that's why I think we need this message to remind ourselves that we can only be so we can only be fulfilled and satisfied. We can only be our truest selves located in God by trusting in God. We'll get to that in a minute. But first, let's look at these temptations Jesus faces off against the devil. And so Jesus is hungry and the devil comes to him. So Matthew 4 verse 3. And the tempter, how's that for the name devil? By the way, don't get used to the devil coming to you as pure evil. Most humans are wise enough to stay away from that. He comes to us in the form of, you're hungry and you want this. So he's called the tempter. The tempter came and said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, and here he cites Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And he passes the first test. Now, I forever wondered, what kind of a temptation is this? What is wrong with eating bread when you're hungry? But see, I was approaching this from a purely moral standpoint, that all the devil tries to do is to get us to make obvious sins. Like, you shall not eat, but you eat. I sinned. That's not what's going on here. Jesus was never commanded not to eat bread, so the temptation is to go against the command and eat bread. That's far too simplistic. There's nothing wrong. The temptation here is not eating bread, but it's in the word command. The temptation's not in the bread. It's in the word command. Jesus is living amongst rocks. Rocks, which may or may not have been very useful for to him at the moment. Rocks, which he may or may not have wanted to be around in the moment. And what the devil tries to get him to do is to command the rocks to become that which he wants them to be. Now, this is where we touch very close to part of the heart of what makes us Americans is Precisely that we value people and we were built as a nation upon the idea that if life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Right? We're a self-made people, a self-made nation. And that's fine. And I'm not at all trying to question um, our origins as sinful or anything. But we go through life 
and we find ourselves in rocky situations or in hard places, we see the people or the circumstances as things we would rather not be involved with. They hurt. They're tough. They're not moldable. They don't yield to our wishes. That's what it's like to have rocks before you. And what the devil's trying to get Jesus to do is to command these rocks. And what we are tempted to do in our situations is to command the people or the places we find ourselves with or in to become that which we can consume and find useful to ourselves. We have a habit of trying to take control of a situation. What we're going to see in these three temptations are the three P's, very commonly described as power, prestige, and possession. And here we see power. We all want power in life. The power to take a situation and to turn it into something that we want it to be, or to turn it into something that's easier to digest or to handle. That's the temptation here. It's the temptation to make miracles happen. And when you have to make a miracle happen, chances are you're trying to do it for yourself. You don't like where you are, so you're trying to utilize everything around you to make it more comfy for you. But sometimes we just need to look at the rock heads around us, or that situation where we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. And rather than trying to manipulate control and command and power over it, to try to see the beauty that's in it inherently. Maybe God has led us to this person or this place because he wants to test us there. You see, we value, or at least the devil wants us to value, having power over something. But God wants to teach us instead to trust in the power within. For me to exercise power over something means that I'm trusting my strength and myself to utilize everything around me my way. But to trust that the Holy Spirit within will give me the power to endure, to move through everything that God puts in my way, that is the true way to walk. That's true power right there. And so the temptation is that Jesus would command. And some of us are trying to make a better life for ourselves, which is fine. Hard work is good, but sometimes we're working too hard. We're trying to make a miracle happen when we weren't gifted with the power of performing miracles. You know, we're trying to cram so much into our schedule or make so much of ourselves or accomplish so much that it's like you're tr- that proverbial trying to squeeze a square peg into a round hole. You're just trying to make it happen. You're beating yourself, trying to get it done. You're exerting all of your power. And at the end of the day, who are we walking over? What trail of destruction are we leaving behind? Because we would rather the stones be bread. We would rather reach that, that golden level where life now is flowing with the abundance of bread. Jesus recognizes, and so do we, that life is not fulfilled by the power we possess, by the things we can change, or the things that we can accomplish or achieve. But rather, life is fulfilled by receiving the words of God into our lives and recognizing that it is in those words we find our power, 
not in my actions or my words. So to have power over things can be one of the devil's temptations. Second, in verse 5, Then the devil took Jesus to the... Now, I want you to notice the terminology here. There's a lot of religious terminology, okay? So the devil took Jesus to the holy city. Didn't just call it Jerusalem. Called it the holy city. And set him on the pinnacle. That's the top of the temple. And said to him, If you are the son of God... Throw yourself down, for it is written. So here's the devil taking Jesus to the holy city, to the holy place, the temple, the pinnacle of it, the highest point of it, and now he's quoting scripture. Friends, the tempter knows his way around the religious world. He knows the terminology. He knows the attitude and the behavior to display. He knows the mask to wear. He has the language down. Isn't God good today, brother? Look at the top of the temple. How pure and holy we are. Oh, let me cite you some scripture to justify what you're doing. So, what does the devil cite? Psalm 91, verses 11 through 12. He kind of picks and chooses his wording here, and you can compare that by going there yourself. Uh, Satan cites, He, God, will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Now Jesus cites scripture to combat the devil's scripture, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is a fantastic scene. Here, we find, I believe, Christians fall for this one often. The tempter wants us to be on the top of the temple This is prestige. This is wanting people to admire us. And one of the surest ways to be admired in your church is to be on top of your Christianity. Taken up to the pinnacle. We know those people. And we may think, we may see people and think, my, they're on top of things. They are admirable. I want to be like him or her. Or, God forbid, you have pastors who act on top of everything and they're not really down to earth or like a normal person. Or we ourselves find within us this desire to be on top of our morality, to be on top of our Bible readings, to be on top of prayer, to be on top of getting language right, to be on top of giving, to be on top of our knowledge, to be on top of purity, to be on top of evangelism. Ooh, there's one. I remember hearing two people who would, it was hard. To be honest, I was a little bit annoyed, but at the same time, how can you be annoyed with people like this? They're doing a good thing. But they go around telling you how many people they got to share the gospel with, how many tracts they passed out, how many conversations they had with the unsaved. 
And yes, you're rooting for them, but at the same time, and perhaps you know what I'm saying because you've experienced this, you're also somewhat bothered. Like, okay, we get it. You're awesome. You're amazing. You're on the pinnacle of the temple and the holy city. We get it. (laughs) Friends, I hope you can see that behind the scenes there is the tempter trying to get us to wear the admiration of others upon our cloak of prestige. Power was one temptation, prestige is another, especially in the realm of your Christianity. But Jesus is at the top of the temple, and he doesn't like the idea of playing this game. He says, look, God is not a platform for prestige. He's not a platform for prestige. I cannot use God. I cannot use Christianity. I cannot use the Bible. I cannot use my walk with him as a platform for the praise of men. Jesus had a word for people that did that. They're called hypocrites. But you may be able to cite verses that justify who who you are and what you're doing. Yeah, sure. I'm sure everything you're doing is fine. But what's the heart behind it? What's the heart behind it? And and in addition, I I talk to a lot of students who struggle because there are the other students and and adults too. Um, But students are usually more open about this. um, Who struggle with the, with the other Christians who, who just have a way of walking and acting like they're, they're on top of it. They've got it down and they would rather throw themselves off the temple, which is part of the devil's temptation here. Throw yourself off. That's another way, by the way, of um, looking for prestige. Is, you know what? I'm not that person, so I'm going to be the person who throws myself off with reckless abandon. Look, look, I'm fine. I live on the edge of the world. I still go to church, and I'm fine. My life is going great. I don't have to invest myself like that person in this religiosity stuff. And so there can be a sense of pride in having one foot in the world and one foot in Christianity and thinking that you're just as good as everybody else. Or basically, you're just full on in the world and you just attend church every now and then. That too, that too is prestige, just in the other direction. And it may be fun, it may be more thrilling to jump off the temple, but you're going to hit the ground at some point. Another temptation in all this is that sometimes we use religion to be judges over humanity. We get to decide who's right, who's wrong, who's in, who's out. And typically, it's when we're on the pinnacle of the temple that we get this attitude. Like, oh, no, they're wrong. They See, they they, they listen to that, or they, they've seen that, or they, they use that word. or And, and we, we judge them. We judge them according to that. That's putting yourself above them. That's putting yourself on the pinnacle of the temple. That's being exactly where the devil wants you to be. So Jesus said he cannot put the Lord your God to the test. We cannot use our faith to test, right? We cannot test people's relationships to God. We cannot test God himself. Look, I'm on top of everything. God, I've passed the... Tests. I'm good with you. No. Jesus often said that the ones who on the surface were at the bottom of the temple, the ones who never even got to go to the temple because they were impure, were more right with God than those who were at the pinnacle of the temple. Remember the parable of the 
tax collector and the Pharisee, and um, I want to say it's Luke 16, it might be 17, it's around there. Jesus said it was the tax collector who went home justified. The Pharisee said, golly, I might as well just go look for it. Make sure I read it right. It's on Luke. It's actually, it looks like it's 18. Luke 18, the two men went up to pray, and the Pharisee prayed this. This is totally standing on the pinnacle of the temple. The Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, who happened to be down a ways praying at the same time. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, is the Pharisee wrong for anything that he's done? No. Fasting twice a week is fantastic. Tithing what you have is fantastic. Choosing not to be an extortioner, unjust, and adulterer, or one who robs money from others like a tax collector, that's fantastic. It's the heart of the man standing on the pinnacle of the temple and using God to test the validity of others that is wrong. Contrast that to the tax collector's prayer. Standing afar off, see he's not on the pinnacle of the temple, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's it, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that, friends, is a great prayer. If we want to come down off of the pinnacle of the temple without jumping for show, but just coming down secretly, no one noticing that you're just going to mingle where the action is, where life is, where normal humans are trying to connect with God. Be there with them. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus' comment about this is, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, the one who prayed, be merciful to me, a sinner, went down. He came down, right? He went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So we saw the temptation of power, of prestige. Third, and finally, Satan is going to test Jesus with possession. Usually people talk about possessions. That is another problem. And it's related to possession. But I'm using the singular with intention. And now I'm not trying to rhyme. Sorry for that. So in verse 8... Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Hmm. 
Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. On the high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world. How he did this is not really worth your time worrying about, because the point is what was offered. All the kingdoms and their glory. This plays upon our desire to possess. We want to possess people, opportunities, things, glory. And notice the condition. You may possess all this, but you must fall down and worship me. To which Jesus answers, you shall only worship the Lord your God and him alone shall you serve. Something that we miss in life, I think, is we never see Satan calling us to bow down to him. And so we think we're never bowing down to him. Friends, when we desire to possess, we are worshiping the devil. Because that is what he does Now, please, 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 please don't hear that I just called you a a devil worshiper and that you you need to save your soul before you go to hell. I'm not trying to scare you. We all participate in this game. And it's, it's, it's like idolatry. We all participate in idolatry from time to time. It's simply about recognizing this and turning the other way, right? The desire to possess. Yes, of course, this leads to possessions, right? We want stuff, so we possess stuff. I once heard somebody say that those who collect are actually expressing, excuse me, they're, they're suppressing creativity, right? There's something in them that's meant to be creating, but rather than creating, they're hoarding. It's the total opposite. Rather than producing, they're consuming, I thought that was interesting. I haven't sat on that a whole lot to say much more, but maybe you can sit on that and think about it. But we want things. We want, because we want to possess things. It feels good to own something, to call it yours. And so we don't just do this with things, which of course is called materialism. And we, and we all want to own a house. We want to own a vehicle. We want to own the clothes on our back. We want to own a book. We want to own a toy, a gadget. It goes on and on and on. And, and, and we own a lot, right? We possess a lot. And, and yeah, that has its own problems. But we also want to possess people. And we see this in youth culture, but we see this in, sadly, adult culture all around us. Really, it's, it's the state of our society is moving this way, to want to possess people. So here's what happens is, this is what sex is. Sex begins with one's desire to possess a person. You see something beautiful, and it's not enough to just admire. 
You want to actually enter into or possess it. You want to own it. You want the beauty to be not just in the world for all to have, but you want it to be yours. You know why? Because we all crave this thing called glory. We want the beautiful things, the shiny things, because we want others to pat us on the back and say, boy, we knew you were worthy. We knew you were something. And so for some in history, it's been literal kingdoms that they want to possess. And so we have wars. We have tyrants. Some want to possess people. And so we have human sex trafficking, we have child labor, and we have just the average American who's trying to sleep with as many beautiful people as they can. See, marriage is meant to prohibit this. Marriage was meant to say, you don't get to go around possessing humans. Which, by the way, you, you'll look at history and see that kings possessed a multitude of women, and the more women they had, like Solomon had a thousand, right? The more powerful they were. It was in this 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 fallen human nature to possess. But the idea with, with marriage was that we had one person. And, and it wasn't even that you possess this person. Because the two of you have one, so you're equally sharing each other. Right? You're sharing. It was meant to prevent our lust to possess human bodies. And so one of the problems is not so much... I mean, and don't get me wrong, this is a moral sin, sleeping around. But the problem is that it, deeper than... Sex is bad, because sex isn't bad. Sex is something God made, and it's good. The deeper problem is that people are going on trying to possess people. All right? I conquered one person. Now I'm going to conquer another. Now I'm going to conquer another. And some even then begin to think, what if I conquer the other gender? Or something like that. You might be wondering, well, what's wrong? What's wrong with possessing things or even people. What if they comply? What if it's consensual? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the sex is consensual. I can't say that items are consensual because they don't really have consent. But that, that's beside the point. It's beside the point because the more you get, the more you have, the more you possess, the less you are. Make sure you heard that. The more you get, the less you are. It's almost as if there's a percentage of ourselves, right? We're born whole, 100%. But we begin to give ourselves away as we possess things. And the amount you want to possess something that much of you goes into it. It's kind of a creepy thought when you think of this. And so here, you can invest, you see this all the time, You invest, a person can invest so much into another person trying to possess them that when they split up, it rips them apart because they've now lost however much of themselves they put into that person, right? The more you get, the less you are. This also works not just in how much you put into one thing, but how many things you have. The more things we have, the more tied down we are and the thinner we are as people. Have you ever noticed how weighty, how substantial people who have less are? It's like they have a joy that you've never been able to buy or experience. It's because they haven't given themselves away with having so much. 
It's like we give little fractions and slivers into every single little thing we own, and we're spread out like like butter on too much toast. We're just thin. And I have to believe that that's one of the reasons Jesus told the rich young ruler to give all he had to the poor to follow him. This wasn't an earning his way into salvation thing that Jesus was teaching. This wasn't a prove your moral worth or your courage by giving all this up. This was more like Jesus looking at this young man saying, you will never find yourself in me as long as you are spread into your things so thinly. You see, we want to possess things. That's what the devil wants to do. He wants to possess this earth. He wants to possess souls. He wants to possess heaven itself. But God wants us to be possessed by him. The only possession to ever make anything better is that of God possessing someone and something. You know what Revelation tells us heaven looks like? It looks like the new heaven and new earth, and it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God has come down to dwell with men. God is going to possess the new heaven and new earth, and that's going to make it heaven a human becomes a Christian. They earn, they, they gain salvation when they are possessed by the Holy Spirit. That's good stuff. And so what's wrong with us going around wanting to possess and own and control and have and get is that it eliminates how much of us is left for God to own. And this is really what it boils down to. We will only be satisfied from life's hunger when we let God own us. I want you to notice some of the things that the devil says to Jesus. He says to him in in the first two temptations, If you are the Son of God, then there's a test. Prove it. Show you're worthy of that status. We hunger in life because we doubt our worth in the eyes of God. We doubt our identity as being fully complete and alive by positioning ourselves within his love. Jesus first heard the words, Son of God, at his baptism. Well, I overstated that. He didn't first hear those words. We don't know when he heard those words. But he heard that he was the Son of God at his baptism. Just in the chapter before, actually, just in the verse before this wilderness temptation, it's Matthew 3, verse 17, we hear, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is in the Jordan River, being baptized by John the Baptizer. He comes up out of the water, and there 
the voice from heaven declares to him and to, we don't know if anybody else heard, but if anybody else heard, declares to the rest, this, this vessel, this person is my beloved son and I am proud of him. I am well pleased in him. I find him worthy and he's mine. He's mine. Friends, I believe that Jesus got baptized because he needed to lead us to this same place. He got baptized because we need to hear those words spoken about us. I know I do. I know I need to hear over and over and over again because the world tells me otherwise. Other people tell me otherwise. The expectations I place on myself and other expectations are placed upon me say otherwise. I need to hear over and over and over that I am God's beloved child and he is pleased with me. He is proud of me. He finds me worthy. That will satisfy our life hunger. Snickers won't do it. Power won't do it. Prestige won't do it. Possession won't do it. Only hearing that God our Father is pleased and proud and praises us. That satisfies your hunger. You are not you when you're hungry. But when he feeds our hunger with those words, with our realization of how much we belong and he loves us and embraces us and brings us into the Trinity's love and relationship and flow of life, when we step into that river and feel that undercurrent of the movement of God coursing through the universe, trying to pull all things to his love and fill all things with his presence and his glory, when we fill that, we will never hunger again. And that is when you will finally be you the you God had in mind when he formed you in his mother, in your mother's womb. Though you who is created and made in the image of God, the true you, the real you, the you you were meant to experience on this life, the you who will be inhabiting heaven. And we can have that. John said we can have eternal life now here on earth. We got to step in the river. We've got to feel the presence of God wash over us. We've got to hear his words spoken about us. He is pleased. He is proud. He praises us. He finds us worthy. We don't have to hustle for it. So we don't need power to try to transform things and make ourselves just feel more accomplished. God, God's not looking at it for us to do that. We don't need prestige where God will suddenly turn his head and say, wow, that human got it together. We don't need possession. Because that limits him saying that we are his. So if you've been trying to satisfy life's hunger through power, prestige, possession, please know tonight that you don't need those. 
You're only trying to satisfy a deep hunger with a Snickers bar. Yeah, we do that every now and then. We're fallen humans. But if you lived on Snickers, you would have some serious problems. Rather, we need to feast upon who God says we are. And now, you might be thinking, but I haven't heard those words, or I don't know how to hear those words. You keep saying it, but as soon as I stop hearing a pastor say it, I no longer hear it because everybody else tells me otherwise. You don't know how my dad treated me, what my mom said about me, what my boss thinks about me, how my neighbors don't care about me. You're right. You're right. That's hard. That's why you need to be in the scriptures. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which comes from the mouth of God. This is where I've learned to hear the voice of God is in the scriptures. Now, I will get into that. just a teaser for you, cliffhanger. Uh, I plan, things change, but I plan to talk about how to get into scripture that way in our first message in Ezekiel. So I don't want to tip my hand too early, but begin with this. The same way Jesus heard those words when he got into the river, we have to get into scripture the same way. We have to step into it. Now, often what we're trying to do is, you know, we're trying to fill our head with it. And then sometimes we try to fill our heart with it, which is good. But I think that's kind of hard to do sometimes. It, It actually requires often a lot of we own it and we are interpreting it and we are trying to find the way it applies in our life. It's, it's really, we got to let go of that and surrender. And we just got to step into the river and let the current take us. We got to step into scripture and let its powerful, wild message take us. We don't do that because we're scared of that. We're scared of the wild possibilities. But I don't know that God is a, is incredibly tame and boring. Eh, you look at the world he created and he had to let something out. <laughs> Step in into scripture, right? Let it dictate what needs to happen. Let it tell you what it means. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and active. Don't try to tame it. Don't try to control it. Especially with like, I only do one verse or I only do a chapter a day. Just let, let it flow. Some days, maybe a single word was all you needed in the Bible. Some days you might need four chapters. Some days you might need to break out of the book you're reading. I hope some of you are reading Ezekiel as we get ready to preach it. Maybe you need the Proverbs this week. But yeah, we need to step into the the river because that's where we will feel and hear what God thinks about us. So, hungry friends, do not succumb to the devil's offerings, but rather buy into what God says about you. And in time, you will begin to see yourself the way God sees you. And that will make all the difference.